welcome back everyone to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we focus on the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game. The only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all of the people at the table. I'm one of your hosts, Dungeon Master Chris. And I'm Dungeon Master Mitch. And today we are talking about combat. We are going to talk about how to spice combat up because sometimes if you do enough combat in one night, it can get a little boring or you might just find yourself in a rut with how to make this combat interesting. So we're going to give you some ideas that might be able to help combat stay fresh for your players. But before we do that, we are going to do a few five-star reviews that we have from iTunes. So our first iTunes review comes from Tiger Raven 1980 Five-star review says, I'm hooked. I heard about these guys from another podcast and decided to give them a go. I've now listened to half their back catalog in just two months. <laughs> oh, wow. Hashtag welcome to the block party. <laughs> that is a lot of hours and episodes to listen to. Yeah. And to be almost completely caught up is impressive. So five stars to you, Tiger Raven. Yeah, thanks, Tiger Raven. And thank you to the whoever the other podcast was that shouted us out. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Our next one comes from DM Ezekiel and is entitled Game Saving Podcast. I have never played D&D before. I really wanted to, so I bought a 3.5 DM's Guide and Player's Handbook. After getting a group of my buddies together, I realized I had gotten over my head. I created my own world and storyline from scratch. My group, of course, went off my meticulously crafted script immediately. I was panicked. A few games in, I found your podcast a lifesaver. I binged every episode and immediately began understanding the way to set the games up better making less work for me, and at the same time, making the game I created more fun for my group. The guys at the DM's block really understand what makes D&D work as a fun collective game. Ah, thank you so much, DM Ezekiel. Thank you so yeah. much. Welcome to the club where we all kind of have meticulously <laughs> planned scripts and our players go off from yeah. them. So. I am a lover of 3.5, but I wouldn't want to go in blind to 3.5 as a DM for the first time and have no idea how to run the system. That would be rough. That would be rough. Oh, boy. So thank you very much. Our last one for the day comes from Batgirl1970. I have a lot of date ones today. That's very interesting. <laughs> thank goodness I found you. I'm a new DM. I don't know any other DMs. I wound up being the DM because I wanted to play Dungeons & Dragons with my friends and almost none of them had played before. I've been checking on YouTube and other podcasts before I stumbled on this one. Thank you for giving good DM advice. I've started from the beginning and I'm on episode five. I went ahead and downloaded all of your podcasts so I can listen to them while <laughs> I'm at work. You've already inspired me to create my own campaign. I'm super excited. Thanks again. So thank you very much, Batgirl. Hope you find those podcasts and those episodes that we've done very, very helpful. <laughs> and hopefully they make your workday a little bit more exciting. <laughs> yeah, so many people listen to us at work. I always wonder, like, are we making people less productive at their work because they're, like, pulling out pens and paper and, like, writing down ideas? I wonder how much we've damaged the economy as the DMs block. <laughs> yeah, right. I hope nobody's gotten fired over <laughs> listening <laughs> yeah, to us as well. That would be terrible. I feel like they'd come back and give us a one-star review of that. <laughs> You're a podcast <laughs> right got me fired <laughs> yeah i think that would be a reasonable one star review yeah. that's about the only time <laughs> or a five star right like your podcast hey, you is so good that it got it me gave fired. me more time to do things <laughs> i'm living in a box but i'm playing D &D every but hey week. <laughs> yeah yeah oh man all right well with that let's head to the meat i'm starving we ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days why can't we have some meats 
So for the meet this week, we are going to be talking about combat. As always, we are coming at this with a rules light approach because that's what we do here at the Dungeon Master's Block. And the first thing we want to be talking about is, you know, sometimes you're playing in combat in D&D and sometimes it may seem like combat is taking forever combat usually starts off usually i would say at least in our group it starts off with like excitement and it's like oh like even if you're not really into combat you're you're excited for the combat to start off and then sometimes it can get it gets slow sometimes people aren't paying attention sometimes you're forgetting things sometimes people build towers out of their <laughs> dice because yeah, they're so people bored are pulling yeah. out books because they have to look up rules and all this kind of stuff and so we want to give you some general advice on ways to keep Keep combat moving, keep the flow going, and to make it so it's not just bogging down your game and that it still goes quick enough that it's still exciting. So the first thing, of course, is that we've talked about this in really, really old episodes way back when, but the initiative tracker. So when you roll for initiative, you have an order set up that is the monsters go, the PCs go, whatever it is, they go in a certain order. Now, the first way to do it, of course, is you as the DM can have a little thing behind your screen to keep track of initiative. I think the biggest thing here is to keep track of initiative, the worst way to go is to have everybody roll and then be like, okay, everybody remember what spot you had. Because nobody's going to remember yeah. if we're I all would, honest I, with and, each other. And yeah. as the DM, I wouldn't remember because yeah. I'd be like, I'm, I've got my my mind in the battle and what I have to do as the enemies or whatever it is, I would not be remembering who is up next and whatever, unless it went in a perfect circle for some amazing right, reason. Around you the can table. just go, Oh, yeah. scrap it. We got a perfect circle. That's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, the DM can keep track of initiative. What I like to do is I would like to ask a player to keep track of initiative because the DM already has so much on their plate. But we've also created an initiative tracker board, which we once again talked about. I think it was a light bulb way, way back yep, when. Way long time ago. Yep, where, yep. And you can do this in a number of different ways. You can get a, a whiteboard uh, and just write on it whenever there's initiative that needs to be tracked down and put it where everybody can see. You can do it on a chalkboard. We printed out little magnet labels for each of us that are placed on a magnet board in a place where all of us can see at the table. And it's just a good reminder that if you lose track of where somebody is in combat, you just look at whatever your initiative tracker board is and you just say, oh, this person's going right now. That means I'm up next or I'm up in two rounds or whatever it is. And there's also lots of apps out there with the same thing. They're apps specifically made for initiative tracking. That's just a way to keep keep it flowing so you don't have, which I know we used to have a lot of the times, whose turn is it who's up now yeah. i mean we still yeah. do but now we just look at the initiative board and we go oh it's this person's yeah. turn yeah so another thing that you can do too is consider having a single enemy turn and so this isn't so bad if you just have you know one monster that you're using in a turn because you have a single enemy turn already but when you get into a battle and you have like six or seven you know say your pcs are a little bit higher up in level and you still are fighting orcs for some reason you know, you might have a lot more orcs to try and make the battle flow and feel dangerous at the same time. And so you could, if you wanted to, roll individual initiative for all of these enemies. 
but that can make battle go even longer. So if they're not all rolled at the same time, it'll just take forever for them to get through. So consider using a single enemy turn where you roll one time for the initiative for everybody, and that's that's where all of your enemies take their turn. And so you could also do that for any sort of DM PCs as well. The, 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 the DM would have just a single turn that all of the characters that, like whether they're NPCs or just random other people, they're also in a turn as well to try and speed things up because like we like we know D&D can take forever when you know people aren't rolling dice at the same time or when things start to take a little bit longer people start getting bored so if we can do anything to speed it up you might want to consider trying the single enemy turn because it it works fantastically well for speeding up encounters you can take the average of the initiative of the enemies yeah. and throw that in and just say this is going to the the enemy's initiative enemies go during this turn and i think the only case for me the only time i don't do this anymore with a single enemy turn is if there's a boss and i want to have the boss's initiative be different than the enemies and like the minions initiative sometimes i still keep it the same but in general i found i enjoy i don't i don't see that much of a reason that the goblins and the orcs can't just go at the same time to keep things simpler Another way that you can do it is if you're not already doing this, rolling multiple dice simultaneously. So if you are the DM and you're controlling six orcs and it's the orcs turn, you can roll all of their dice at once for their attack. If you need a way to distinguish, you can have a certain like color coordinated. This dice represents the enemy that is furthest to the left or furthest to the right on the battle map, if that's something that you need to distinguish. But in general, if you have six enemies and you're rolling, 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 and rolling, rolling, rolling. And I I think that another thing here is we're not here advertising a single dice company or whatever, but it is good, (laughs) I think, for a DM to own multiple pairs of dice because especially if you come across a a dragon that does 10d6 points of fire damage on a breath it's attack. your old yahtzee sets out <laughs> if you only have one set of the classic seven D dice and you only have one d6 which to me seems crazy because d6s are like coming out my ears like i don't need any more yeah. d6s but having a number of dice it helps to be able to make things go quick and i feel like math becomes easier instead of having to roll count roll count roll count you just roll the dice and you try and remember hope you don't forget exactly it's it i know a lot of people listening right now probably have a lot of dice and are probably thinking that's so obvious like why do i need to hear that but this is something that can absolutely speed things up if you want to get lots of dice just go online and just get one of those pounded dice and have them directed to your door and you'll get plenty of dice and you will have no further dice worries. And I think another thing too is if you don't have a ton of dice, you can find apps that easily allow you to roll tons and tons of dice at the same time. And speaking of math, most of those apps add it up right away for you. I thought about switching our group strictly over to apps because adding (laughs) takes a long time. So we we could add adding to this list just cut out adding Uh, (laughs) i think i think there is a good argument out there that dice apps are not the same as rolling real dice oh yeah yeah i wouldn't want to use dice apps for the most part dice apps are nice because when we do things like hired heroes i can have dice wherever i go without actually needing to take dice wherever i go yeah yeah rng programs for the most part are 
not trustworthy. <laughs> but one thing that I do love about battles too, we all love the movies of the Lord of the Rings with the huge battles, mm-hmm. you know, like Helm's Deep and Minas Tirith. We all want to be part of those battles in D&D. Yeah. We all <laughs> want to be a part of those battles. But as a DM, those are a nightmare. Well, even as a player, like even if as you're a player, actually yeah. trying to set something lad up. I remember this one time I I did a battle in college and it took the entire like Saturday. We basically set up the entire long table we had and we had made like houses and stuff to make this entire place a town that the the players would start at the gate and they ran through in the battle and they would just get into battles and fights and fights. And it was basically just set up like it was like a, a tabletop war game yeah like warhammer or the lord of the rings games workshop game it was like one of those games it was set up and it took a long time and it's a great memory but i remember it took a long time to do this and there are points that it was just like oh this is so strenuous and so long yeah and so i think one thing that you can learn like if it's not just your pcs in that battle like if you have other little allied minis that you're going to use you might want to consider just saying hey there's a there's a huge battle going on on the other side and however you want to control that as the dm whether you you know roll dice to see how well the allies do or whatnot like there there are ways that can help you scale down the battle so it still feels like a small scale battle but everybody can understand at the same time that there's this huge battle going on all around and that can save you like you said mitch i remember your college day games and they were like 13 hours <laughs> per day <laughs> Those are good days man they, they were good days go back to them but they were good nope, days for the nope. time in college that is what we wanted and that's what we needed <laughs> yeah especially if they were going to be completely 100 percent battle i would just be like all right i'm sick this day or something but that's one way that you can help scale that down to help battle go quicker as well D&D is a game, a huge game of pretend, right? So do you need to set up all the minis for every piece? I mean, if you even have that many minis to set up That'd every crazy. piece in battle, like you don't need to do that. You can just explain to your players, like describe the battle going on around them. Maybe you make it so if they have to, if they try to move away from the enemies that they're currently involved, you drop in a couple more or you make them slower for movement because they're having to move past guys or whatever. There's so many ways, like you said, that you can get that idea and that understanding without actually having to drop a hundred or more minis onto a battle map. And and then as the DM have to take turns or all of them or whatever it is, it's just that's that's crazy talk. That's that's not yeah. needed. All right. Five, ten, yeah. <laughs> fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, thirty. Okay, now I can move the next one. <laughs> Personally, like as a DM, I always want my players to be in their minds portraying the battle and what's going on. And I think I think the minis and the maps are amazing and they're great. But a lot of the times I think as a DM, it makes us lazy in that sense. That, mm-hmm. And it, as players, too, we're always looking at the minis and the maps and going like, this is the battle, but we're not imagining it in our own minds. And we as the DM should be doing things to try and break out of that. And if you're if you're having a huge battle like and you're dropping down all those minis, I think you're you're at the point where you're saying my imagination is ruled by this grid and this these minis. I think one thing that helps in 
our games and sometimes we constantly need to remind certain people but reminding our players to plan ahead so if they are last on the initiative it shouldn't be that they aren't thinking about what they want to do the entire time and then you get up to them and i'm sure every person listening to this podcast knows maybe you're that guy (laughs) but or maybe maybe you have somebody like that at the table where they've had a long time to think about what they want to do it gets up to them and they have no idea what they want to do and isn't it always the wizard too that it's like always let me see what spells i have taken for the day and what they do and they start reading it and there's a point in a degree that it's good for them to be like engaged in what's happening in the battle and i think you can do that and still kind of watch the battle and plan ahead and if you're a wizard you really 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 should be doing this any kind of spell caster you should know in the back of your mind what kind of spell you want to use now of course there is a very true argument here that depending on what happens in the battle even the turn before you go that might completely change what you're going to do But that's not always going to be the case. And if you can have it in your mind, like, I think I want to do this. I think I want to go after this guy. I think I want to use this attack. It just helps to keep the battle moving. If everyone's paying attention and if everybody's kind of planning out their moves and trying to think, what what is it that my character wants to do here? Yeah, I think another thing, too, not only on the player side of things, but on the DM side of things, too, something that can help you out is understanding the monsters that you have because there's no worse feeling going into a battle and being like, oh my gosh, I they're getting to fight, you know, using an Aboleth or something or a Mind Flayer and not understanding what that monster does and that player's breezing through it because you didn't know what, <laughs> what that monster really did or using it wrong, then figuring out, okay, now I have to go back and now I have to redo this. And so then you're basically doing everything you just did over again. And so I think understanding monsters as well as players planning ahead from both sides of the table can really help move battle forward and help keep encounters fresh and interesting as well. Yeah, the other side of that is that the DM is using a monster and he planned out to use a monster and then he's taking up so much time because he's having to read the rules on how their attacks work and what their defenses are. And, and you know, I've had moments where I've had to read monster powers to make sure we're doing it right or whatever it is. But I think there's something to be said about if you plan on using a monster that has four pages describing what they can do and that you just looked at the picture and you're like, that guy looks cool. I'm going to use him tonight. I want to use him. And you haven't done any reading to understand what they do and whatnot. I mean, a lot of times that could get your players, your PCs killed or have the monster just be totally way too easy, depending on where you are, like with that kind of monster. If you've already got in your mind, I'm going to use this crazy monster with all these powers and you haven't even taken the time to look at the powers and get a general understanding. That's a problem. Yes. That's going to slow it down. So let's talk about how to make combat fresh. I think the thing is here, battle sometimes, as DMs, we've all done it, where battle can just get kind of lazy. We think as DMs, oh, we, we need to have a battle here, so we drop in we drop in battle because you need to have battle, and sometimes battle can just become really stale, and it's the same thing over and over again, especially if we're talking about minis and, and using grids. It's just drop the grid down, Put the PC minis down, put the monsters mini down, and roll the dice to see who wins. And that's what battle sometimes can just become. And that's not what battle 
should be like every now and then that's okay but battle should be exciting and there should be different elements to battle and so today we want to talk about how to make combat fresh and different ways you can do that and how you can spice it up and make it different from each battle to battle and make your players keep them guessing and keep them excited yeah i think the first thing numbers always plays a big role in this so you can have the one big bad and usually they are one of the strongest people on the map. I mean, if you go through and do all of the math to make the challenge rating either medium, hard, or deadly in 5e, like one big bad guy can be a terror for your players. And that makes things interesting because at that point in time, this guy is one of the most powerful people on the board. Your players are not sure if they're going to make it out of this. I would imagine if there's one big bad, he's pretty strong. He has some really cool things that he can do in his in his flavor text and stuff and so when you when you use one big bad you have more things at your disposal that this guy can throw at your players and your players not knowing what's going to come next or what attack this person's going to use or what spell this person's going to cast or what special ability this creature has can make a battle really really interesting because if you can describe this huge gas cloud that this thing let off coming at you and rolling over you like that is much more intimidating than saying all right this orc comes up and slashes you again you know there's nothing wrong with using an orc you can you can spice up having that slashing damage be very interesting for your characters but when you use one big bad guy it can make battle really really interesting for your players then you also have the 1v1 battle where this is, there's, say you have four players in your group, there's four monsters on the other side or four creatures on the other side, and each person has their person that they're going up against. At the very least, they could do that if they wanted. Like, you get yeah. that guy, you get that guy. That's right. how, uh, not how it's always going to be, but... <laughs> right. Or even if somebody decides to split the group, Mitch, <laughs> Mitch, and they end up in a sewer system somewhere, and they're one-on-one -on -one with a creature down there. Yeah, I mean, man. you could do it that way, too, and that makes battle always more interesting because... At that point, nobody else is there to really save your skin. Everybody else is engaged with somebody else. It is whose dice rolls the best, who hits for the hardest. That determines who's going to win that battle in a 1v1 sometimes. And that is really interesting for players because players at that point in time are, I, I don't know if this character is going to live past this next you know two minutes of battle. Like I, This character that I've become so attached with, I don't know what's going to happen to him. Will he win? Will he die? I, I don't know. And so 1v1 can be a really, really interesting way to make battle interesting as well. And then there's the classic outnumbered. I mean, we, we you, you guys experienced this the other week in the Solarian Islands where you were in this camp where all of a sudden there were just hundreds of people running at you. Granted, they were commoners, so they didn't really do a whole lot of damage to you. But that feeling of being outnumbered, that's why zombie shows are so interesting. That's why The Walking Dead, we get together and watch it every single week because... When people feel outnumbered, that's when people really you, you really start to see what people are made of. Does somebody decide to run away from your group and leave everybody else behind to save their own skin? Probably not in most cases in a D&D &D game, but that's always a possibility. How low do they end up getting in terms of health? What happens when they're completely outnumbered? Is this a way for you to introduce possibly an NPC who can come in and save their skin because they can't? You know, there's there's so many ways that you can make the outnumbered trope feel fresh and new for your players. 
Another way that you can keep combat fresh is by utilizing monster powers. Chris, you mentioned before, like, using a big bad can be more interesting than just using the orc. I've used orcs a lot of times in my campaigns as enemies. Orcs are really, really easy. Goblins are easy. Kobolds are easy because we all know how kobolds, goblins, and orcs work. They run in, they hit, and if they're cowards, they run away before all of the guys are doomed because of the PCs. But they don't really have any sort of powers that makes them interesting, that makes them really scary when it comes to players versing them and so using monster powers can keep things fresh because it keeps players on their feet it keeps them guessing they don't exactly know what exactly the powers are going to do and when they find out it can be terrifying and making things scary and making combat challenging and scary is a way to keep it fresh so because of this chris and me have just we've pulled out a couple monsters that we just wanted to just very quickly highlight like what you can pull this monster out maybe you've never even looked at this monster in the monster manual before and what their powers can do in battle and how it can keep things fresh so one that i find really fascinating is the fulmarian he looks like this deformed purple creature with a huge eyeball and so one of his special powers is called evil eye and what happens is he stares at this creature within 60 feet of it and makes the the character that he stares at has to make a dc charisma saving throw when they fail it they take 68 psychic damage that's really interesting in and of itself because a stare that can do psychic damage but it goes further there's another one called curse of the evil eye And so what happens is when somebody fails the check against the evil eye, they also become cursed with deformities much like what the Fomarian has. And so what happens is they get disadvantage on all ability checks, saving throws, and attacks based on strength or dexterity when they fail a save throw for the evil eye. And so things like that, like people may walk into a cave or whatever and see this purple deformed creature with a big club. But what they really don't know about this thing is that there are so many things much more worse about this than just its club coming down on top of their head. Another example is the Banshee. The Banshee not only has like a lot of ghost-like creatures and undead creatures, it has the use of the action Horrifying Visage, which makes you have to roll a wisdom check or you're frightened for a whole entire minute. We had we versed a ghost recently, Chris, and yep. a couple of you guys became frightened and had to run away for an entire minute. So the Banshee has that, but it also has this attack called Whale, and it can only use it once a day. However, if you're running in with four to six PCs or whatever it is, the Banshee does what Banshees do best. It wails out a terrifying cry, and all other creatures within 30 feet of it have to roll a constitution save, and they have to make a 13. If they succeed, they take a certain amount of psychic damage, so they're getting hurt if they succeed. But if they fail they immediately drop to zero hit points, which is just like, that is scary. Like if you want to make something like scary and make your PCs be afraid, just one attack from this Banshee and they all drop to zero. Now Mm -hmm. that even becomes scary if there's more than one Banshee, but we won't go into that. Oh yeah. (laughs) You walk into a place where there's like 15 of them. It's like, (laughs) all right, here we go. Uh, Another one that I really like is the Galeb Dewar. This is a big boulder looking creature. It has a, ability to it called false appearance and people can't tell when they're walking past this thing if it stays motionless on the ground that it's anything other than a boulder 
And so people could walk by, they could step on it, and they would never know what they were actually stepping on. They also have this ability called animate boulders, and they can do it one time per day. And what this does is the Galeb door, he magically animates up to two boulders within 60 feet of it. And this boulder has the statistics like those of a Galeb door, except for its intelligence is one and its charisma is one. (laughs) So it can't be charmed or frightened. And it lacks this action option, so it can't animate more boulders, which would be absolutely crazy (laughs) if they could animate more boulders every single time. A boulder remains animated as long as the Galeb Doer maintains concentration, which is up to one minute. So this guy can create more of himself, essentially, that, that are able to turn the tide of the battle. So your players come in, they think they're fighting just this one boulder man who just smashed into them, and now they're fighting two of them. Or three turn into six. Like, it's crazy. It just doubles however many there are. Another one that would be interesting is the Kenku. And Kenkus are these crow-looking creatures that they live primarily in the Underdark. And so their most interesting thing, I love this about the Kenkus, is they have this trait about them called mimicry. And it says the Kenku can mimic any sound that it has heard, including voices. A creature that hears the sound can tell they are imitations when it succeeds a DC-14 wisdom check. So if you're in the Underdark, a Kenku, if a Kenku was heard the shouts of screaming of an adventurer as they die when the kenkus have killed them it can now mimic that and make you think that people are under attack and draw you in if the kenku has heard the sound of running water and you are walking through the underdark and you are thirsty because you haven't drank in the longest time you can have a bunch of kenkus waiting to ambush your party because they knew you were coming and making the sound of running water and as your pcs run in because they're all we're so thirsty and they're looking for water all of a sudden these kenkus come completely ambush them and just try and take them down i love that that idea that they can mimic any sound any sound at all (laughs) that they have already heard i hope we never have to face those (laughs) because they sound awful the last one that i have is called the gibbering mouther and so i love the gibbering mouther i've used them before and so i'm going to share with you my love for them they have this thing called aberrant ground and so the ground within a 10 foot radius around the mouther turns into like a dough-like substance it's essentially like glue that sticks to these people's feet if they fail a dc 10 strength saving throw so they could be running into this thing they fail their save and they're just stuck in place like right in front of this thing who has all of these crazy mouths and so then they also have this ability called gibbering and so the mouther babbles incoherently while it can see any creature and isn't incapacitated Each creature that starts its turn within 20 feet of the mouther can hear the gibbering and they must succeed a DC 10 wisdom saving throw. If somebody fails, that creature can't take reactions until the start of its next turn. And then they have to roll on a D8 to determine what it does during its turn. It then controls basically what what you're going to do. And so on a 1 to a 4, the creature does nothing. They just stand there. On a five or a six, the creature takes no action or bonus action and uses all of its movement to move in a random determined direction. Only on a seven or eight does the creature make a melee attack against a randomly determined creature within its reach. So then you might even have characters that are around each other that just start swinging at each other and this thing just stands there and laughs because that's that's all that they can do that round. And it also has something called binding spittle, which the mouther spits a chemical glob at a point it can see within 15 feet The glob explodes in a blinding flash of light on impact, and each creature within five feet of the flash must succeed on a DC 13 dexterity saving throw or be blinded until the end of the Mouther's next turn. 
So I love these things. There's so many fun, fantastic things that this creature can do. It's really weak. It's only a challenge rating two, but it has a lot of things that can be very potent against characters that run into its little domain. Yeah, so this isn't even mentioning monster abilities such as damage immunities and damage resistances, condition immunities. It's not even mentioning all those kind of things that can make battling monsters different and more difficult and more entertaining, whatever it is. All of these powers, there's a reason there's an entire monster manual and there are more monster manuals to come in 5th edition, there are so many monster manuals in 3.5. There's a reason that there are so many monsters being created. If every single monster was just health and AC and here is their punch attack, monsters would be really boring. But you have books and books to look at for different kinds of monsters and different kinds of powers that these monsters have. Monsters are supposed to have different kinds of powers that make things fresh and are different and are scary and things that your players never saw coming. And so monster powers are a way absolutely to keep combat entertaining and fresh. The next thing that we're going to talk about that can make combat fresh is called strategic warfare. And so when we think of strategic warfare, we think about things that are like traps, for example. Traps are a way that can, even before you start, combat with other characters or other creatures traps are a way to possibly level the playing field so if you're thinking about hey my campaign is going to be 100 percent focused you know around orcs for whatever reason maybe once you get to higher levels you start introducing traps that these orcs have set up or they've had somebody set up and so you walk into this cave and you're not sure like hey we're just going to walk into this empty cave there's not going to be anything that happens to us we're just going to walk in slaughter these goblins or these these orcs or whoever we're fighting and walk out but lo and behold they walk through and they fall into a pit trap or they fall into a pressure plate that shoots an arrow out at them it's something that doesn't have to do with necessarily rolling initiative and setting up combat and doing all of this, that, and the other thing. But at the same time, it's keeping things that would otherwise be dull, like an empty cave or an empty hallway, and making it more fresh by adding in things such as traps. And I think traps are absolutely fascinating because even if the rogue thinks that they've found what they were looking for, they think they've you know, deactivated this trap, and they're like, all right, let's go, guys, and they step through they might not have actually been able to do it. And then they're always second-guessing themselves. I remember playing Cruor. I did this all <laughs> the time. It got to the point where we finally said, all right, guys, back up 50 feet. Whatever happens, happens to me and me only because I don't trust myself anymore. And traps <laughs> are an interesting way that can really make encounters very, very fresh. And I think it makes so much sense, too, especially in the terms of the dungeon crawl we don't do it enough as dms but if these monsters who live in these dungeons have been there for a while and if they've had intruders before they are going to set it up so that they get their strategic advantage upon invaders i remember this one battle that i did this is one of my favorite battles that i set up was it was a dungeon crawl and it was in a cave and the pcs came out into this open cavern and in front of them there was two cliff sides that goblin archers were on. And right before them, there was like a bunch of wooden stakes just set up so that they couldn't get up to the cliff where the goblins had gotten really quick and start like attacking them. 
So they started, they ran into battle. They're trying to jump and get over and climb over all of these, these wooden spikes. But then they started to notice that they were stepping in something sticky and the goblins had set up oil all over this, this entrance way with these stakes. So now they're stuck once they realize, oh my gosh, we're stuck in the middle of all of these wooden spikes with oil on us. And when you see the goblins light their arrows with fire and shoot it at them. And now they are burning in the middle of this wooden staked entranceway. And they still have to get to these goblins who are shooting arrows at them constantly. And it was just this, like this moment of we had been at high enough level where they were like goblins easy for the picking. Yeah, but these right. Goblins had made a strategic stance and were like, whatever comes to this entranceway, they are going to be in trouble. And they certainly were in trouble and it was a really really strategic advantage that the goblins had and i think that makes a lot of sense for creatures that live in dungeons to set up traps like you said the setup like you walk into a room and you see the monster in front of you and they've set up a they've put the classic like big leaves over a hole in the ground and they fall <laughs> yeah, in kind right. of thing or they fake you out yeah. like you you have the leaves over that and it's actually the right thing to walk right. over the yeah, rest exactly. of the room is the dangerous part yeah <laughs> yeah like they they're like constantly like why do the adventurers not walk on the leaves what if we try it this way? But yeah, like <laughs> yeah, right. these monsters who are in dungeons should have the upper hand as far as being able to set up traps and being strategic in the way that they set themselves up. And I think that the maps and the grids make us lazy in that sense a lot. Like we were just like, oh, drop the minis in and they're in the center of the room and there's this many feet between them. So you're going to have to run up to them. But once you get up to them, it's just pretty straightforward. Another way that you can have strategic warfare for encounters is if you set up battles that are in anti-magic field. What this calls to mind for me is like an evil campaign where characters are trying to break into a vault or something. And I think in a world filled with magic, there would be, there would absolutely be guards, but they would also set up anti-magic fields wherever like these vaults are being protected because they don't want magicians and wizards to be able to just pop in and pop out. And so an anti-magic field, maybe they've, they've hired a wizard or they've bought an object, whatever it is to just make it. So this whole area, there can be no magic that's a way that can make combat. Honestly, it can make combat really frustrating for whoever the spellcasters are, but it makes a lot of sense. It's a strategic act of battle that would be taken into place if whoever your enemy is believes that there's a good chance that magic users can come in and just ruin their plans. I love the idea that you were... I you kind of said it a little bit like maybe there's this object in the vault that is the anti-magic field. Yeah. <laughs> like somebody walks into the vault and the, you know, the magician has never been in there. The wizard has never been in there. And he's like, all right, we get in, I'll teleport us out. Yeah. Right. And they have this item that's now in his pockets, like or in his possession. He's like, all right, well we got to get out of the vault and then I could teleport us out. And it just like, he just keeps getting more and more frustrated trying to figure out where the end of this <laughs> anti-magic field is. And it's really in his pocket yeah. the whole time. And that's what is making it so hard for him to try and teleport away. Like, I love that idea. You're right. That's a sweet idea. I like the idea of like, what if it was like a beautiful Vorpal sword and yet they've made just one little difference to it. They've taken like a gem and they've put it into the hilt of the sword. And that gem is like a magical anti-magic 
stone. And so these burglars who has a, a wizard with them, they pop in and then they can't get out. And that's brilliant and that's strategic because if you have burglars, you're going to want to catch, catch them. And if, if they get their goal, then they are stuck in what used to be a vault, but what now is also doubling as a prison for them until yeah. the guards come yeah. along and arrest them. And I love the idea, too, of ambushes. And so I remember my first introduction to fifth edition was playing the lost minds of Findelver. And one of the very first encounters you have is with, I think it was like three or four goblins that are just sitting in the bushes waiting for you. And so you're just like kind of leisurely strolling down, you know, the, the pathway and out from these bushes, you just see these arrows start coming at you. It's fascinating because you're like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Like what is going on now? I thought we were headed to this next town and all of a sudden we're being ambushed by goblins or, by bandits or by you know whoever is on this road trying to prevent you from going or you're on the open seas or something and all of a sudden you know like we talked about one of the past story times all of a sudden there's a fish that just sticks to the side of your ship and it's like okay how do we figure out how to get out of here and then even more than that we're out in the water you can't see into water unless it's like super super clear and up from the depths comes a massive dragon turtle that we're not expecting like ambushes are absolutely fascinating to me because players aren't expecting them and so they're automatically intrigued as to like why in the world is this type of thing happening to me and so i think that's why ambushes are a great way to make combat very fresh for your players and it makes sense too like how often do the players want to have be like oh can can our guys get the jump on these enemies can our guys do that like enemies are going to want to do the same thing like if you can have oh, a yeah. surprise round like the amount of damage you can do in a surprise round sometimes is incredible <laughs> like oh and so yeah enemies totally are, and enemies are going to set themselves up to be able to do an ambush with the most punch like if we can take these guys down and not have to deal with like actually fighting them at full power afterwards let's take them down as much as we can let's weaken them as much as we can from the first hit <laughs> so replace those arrows with fireballs and oh my yeah, gosh that oh is gosh. scary <laughs> that's uh, not an ambush that's like a murder <laughs> hole like that's not even <laughs> hashtag murder hole <laughs> oh no oh gosh so another thing speaking about like setting up in dungeons and things like that this goes along with that and traps and everything but think of it in the sense of like a fortress and what kind of tactics are used in battle like chris brought up helms deep before but think of like those battles and what kind of advantages and strategic warfare is used during those big battles like if you are on the side of the side that is in control of the castle or the fortress or whatever it is then watchtowers are going to be important because they you can have like watchtowers in which your you have characters that have a horn that alert people so that it stops those surprise attacks from happening. If you are in the middle of a battle and you're in a fortress type setup, having tar and oil to pour down on the attackers is a great thing. Having archers to shoot fire, having archers to shoot arrows from strategic points that they are going to be protected from, having catapults, all these things can be used. And obviously these things can be used for advantage for the players, but give those things to enemies as well. Let your enemies have things like that that are going to make it much more difficult for your PCs just to run into a, a gridded room and attack the enemies in the middle of the room. You can also, if we're talking about 
on the side of attacking a well-fortified place, you have siege towers, you have battering rams, you can have all those kinds of things. These are things we should be thinking about when we're talking about battle that can be used. It's just another sense of like traps and different kinds of equipment that can be used by enemies that can make battle engaging, difficult, and it can keep it fresh. Yeah, I think for me, one of my favorite movies that exemplifies the fortress well is kingdom of heaven Mm -hmm. like you remember how meticulous they went into setting up that one (laughs) battle with the rocks that were painted so you knew how far away it was and they had the the tar pits and they had the moment where they stuck those big hooks into the siege towers and pull them over like fortresses are just absolutely amazing to me because you can do so many things that players don't know about going up to them especially if they're going up against an enemy fortress and by all means if your players want to set up a fortress let them go crazy with it as long (laughs) as they have the money for it they can come up with some really cool things that can be added to a fortress players are very very creative when it comes to things like this maybe they just like to watch things die i don't well you can take you can take very mundane things and make them into strategic objects of warfare like you were talking about the rocks from kingdom of heaven i forgot about that but that's it was such a brilliant way to mark like this is how far our archers can shoot so don't shoot until they reach these rocks because then we know that your arrows aren't going to be missing and then i mean think of a you can buy oil like pints of oil <laughs> in D for so cheap if you had the time to set those up, if or, or if your enemy had the time to set up pints of oil for super cheap, I mean, that's that's just like, <laughs> that's a very strategic oh, yeah. way to make sure that your enemies don't get up again. So another thing that can make combat very fresh is the element of mystery. And I remember reading mystery novels like it was my job when I was a kid. And so mystery just has this way of sucking you into whatever it is that's going on and not letting you go. I remember watching Scooby-Doo and always wondering, like, who is the person behind the mask? I know we've seen him earlier, but I love the element of mystery because it it takes things that are potentially familiar and puts a little cloud around it that your players have to figure out. And so one thing that you can do to add the element of mystery is you have this familiar monster. Like, if you've played D&D for a while, there are certain creatures that you know just by the, the DM starting to introduce what they look like. And so what's familiar can then become very mysterious by adding just a few differences. And so you can give them things like new weapons. You can give them things like new armor. You can give them new classes. You can give them different colors. Or you can add wings to a specific creature that didn't normally have wings. And then it's like, well, why in the world does this creature now have wings? They're not supposed to have that. Or you have the orc that all of a sudden now has a higher AC. Like, well, what in the world happened there? Why does he have a higher AC? Why does he hit for harder? Like, what in the world is going on there? That's not how orcs are supposed to operate. You can give them new classes, and so now all of a sudden the fighter is not just a fighter, but this orc is now also a druid who all of a sudden wild shapes into something else. Like, there's there's so many fun things that you can do with familiar creatures or familiar monsters just by changing a few different things that they have at their disposal. Yeah, this whole element of mystery, I think it adds like this. The players see those things like you were just talking about, like new weapons and new armor and and all those kind of different things. Why do they have this and why is this different? And I mean, sometimes we as DMs could you can also set it up to kind of just lead your players off to thinking there's a danger and maybe there isn't even a danger. Maybe this this new weapon that they're holding, maybe the shiny sword is just a shiny sword and there's nothing 
new and exciting about it, but it can make the players go, oh, man, that guy's got to be more dangerous. Oh, they're wearing what? They got to be more dangerous. But they might not, not even be that, but they might. And it's that whole, like, element of mystery of what does that do? Why is it like that? It can just make it a little bit more frightening in that sense. One thing that I really like is I like homebrew creatures like in our raw real monsters episode chris you and me talk about different homebrew monsters that we make and what their powers are and what kind of things that they do and i think the reason that i first started making homebrew creatures i think there's two reasons one is because i love to create and i love to world build and so creating a world that you want to make creatures that are different for your world and they only exist in your world because you've created them However, another reason is because I also know that some of our players have read monster manuals, and we all know how I feel about that. And it's it's frustrating when you pull out monsters and players are just like, oh, I know exactly what that is, and I know exactly what that right. does. And right. like, Chris, you and me have done that before where we're playing and you're DMing or I'm DMing, and we can tell that it's like, oh, Chris knows what this thing is. Oh, Mitch knows what this thing is. And I think there's a good argument to be made that, well, if you're a dungeon master, that's kind of your job to be looking out for those things. Right. But it's also your job if you're a dungeon master in that moment to be like, I yes. know what this is. And not to blow But I'm going to table. play dumb. Like, would my mm-hmm. character know yeah, what this exactly, is? Exactly, exactly. I had to do that when you threw a displacer beast at us. <laughs> I was like, I know how this works. Yeah. But I have to play nice dumb. Because I knew you knew how it worked. However, none of the other players had ever really know what it was like i remember i think magic mark hashtag magic mark was like oh this thing seems so familiar which it was Mm -hmm. so nice that he didn't because (laughs) (laughs) hashtag magic mark is one of those guys that reads the monster manuals and drives me crazy (laughs) but like if you create homebrew creatures you are eliminating all chance that your players are sitting at the table going whether it's out loud to frustrate you even more or in their minds going Oh, I know exactly what this is. I know exactly what it does. You're throwing at them something that they're just like, I don't I don't know what this is and I don't know what that does. Yeah, and I think on top of like homebrew creatures too, like giving those creatures homebrew powers or homebrew spells to use. I mean, even creating them that just anybody can use really creates that element of mystery too because all of a sudden they're hit by this spell that it's not something they've ever seen they're like flipping through their spell books like, <laughs> right, man, i, I want this spell like what in the world what is this this thing's so cool and it's not it's not in there and maybe it's one that only this person knows or maybe it's like only evil characters know this spell or something and because you're not evil this is why you've never seen it before and i think things like that really throw your players for a loop and in that moment they're like that is so cool yeah and then they're hooked they want to see not that they want to see it more but they want to see it more. They want to see more things like that because homebrew has the potential to do that type of things in your players' minds. So another element that can be changed to make a battle seem more interesting is the environment. There's all different things you can do with the environment and you should be doing with the environment and taking into account what is the environment around the PCs and the enemies and how is it either helping the PCs or how is it hindering the PCs in this battle? One of these is a marsh. Like if you're in the middle of a marsh, a swamp, obviously I think the first thing that pops into my head is hindered movement, like having to move slower through this marsh or swamp. And I think the enemies that are in this swamp are probably going to be acclimated to this environment and it's going to be much more easy for them to be in this marsh. Even I think of being in a marsh or swamp with you're up to your, 
your waist or higher, depending on how deep the swamp is of muck. And then you see like bubbles coming at you and having no idea and no idea what to do. Right. Oh my gosh, this is a creature that lives in this marsh, in this swamp, and they're coming at me from underneath all this goop. Yeah, I think too, I think of tundras, which are always fun, but you have like just mounds and mounds of snow very similar to that. And this could be something where there's like tunnels built under the snow yeah. too, so you really can't see. Even if you were to walk into it or walk through it, you would still have no idea that there was anything going on here. And all of a sudden you have these creatures that are biting at your legs that you can't see or snow is coming down. We'll talk about weather a little bit more, but it's starting to pile up more and more. And then you have to worry about, well, where are we going to rest for the night? Like what, how are we going to even survive where we're at? Because it's not just the enemies that you have to worry about in this place. It's also the weather and how you're going to survive when it comes to tundras. Volcanoes too, especially if they are volcanoes that you have like lava that if you get to a certain point where you're close enough to it, it starts doing damage. Or if you're on a volcano and it's there's running magma down the mountain and you have to like set it up on your map that you can't go that way because there is lava coming down the mountain like that creates a whole difficult environment especially once again if you think of what what are the creatures you're fighting on this volcano well they might be like creatures made of lava and magma well they are not being hindered by this at all i think of cliffs too like you could be backed up against a cliff like at the top of it and so then you have to decide okay what are we going to do how high is it are we going to jump are we going to try and climb down like how in the world are we going to get out of the situation or vice versa you're at the bottom of a cliff and you're backed up against it well, do you start climbing? Because then you're just a sitting duck for people that have arrows. You're also moving slower. So you have that disadvantage as well. I think cliffs are very, very intriguing. Or you're fighting on a small ledge in the middle of a cliff because something's come out of a cave or you know, you're, it's a little path on the side of it that you've bumped into somebody who doesn't want you to go any further. And so I think cliffs can be really, really intriguing for your characters to have to do battle on. And it gives the players both the disadvantage and the advantage of we can throw enemies off the cliff, but also the enemies can try to do the exact same thing to us. Or even if the enemies are at the top of the cliff, they get cover now and they're shooting down at you and you're just sitting ducks. Like there's so <laughs> many things with cliffs that are just interesting yeah. to be able to use. Dark caves like are one that we use a lot when we're using dungeons. And we as dungeon masters should be somewhat familiar with the rules of darkness and how they can be a hindrance to your players, especially those without dark vision. But also if you're thinking of the cave sense and there are stalactites that are hanging from the ceiling and what if part of the battle is if loud noises go off in this cave, that this cave is not exactly stable, and so these stalactites might fall on your players. And so whenever there's a loud noise, maybe there's a percentile roll that... And here's that we are not advocating that classic DM says a rock falls in your head and you're dead kind of thing. But the, right. there can be like stones falling down from the ceiling and they can do damage to your enemies and to your PCs as this battle is going on. You could also use rivers. Rivers are sometimes very hard to cross, and so you might have to have them figure out how they're going to cross it. They try to make a makeshift boat. Well, how sturdy is the boat? Does it fall apart? Do Are they then now just at the mercy of the river? Do they have to take... So, you know, you could, you could incorporate ambushes. Do they take their armor off so they don't just sink so they can swim across? Well, now they get over to the other side, and are they ambushed by people now that they have their armor off? So, 
rivers can be a very, very fascinating environmental choice to use when you have your players trying to cross them or wade through them or however they're going to get through. Tall grass and dense forest, both of those can lead to difficult visibility. You can have monsters hiding in tall grass, hiding around corners of trees in dense forest all that can add to a battle i just think that there should be flesh rakers in all tall grass just like in jurassic (laughs) park yes you could do quicksand so you're all of a sudden walking along and you're now stuck so maybe all of your players are stuck in this quicksand and what happens if they can't get out like do they just sink and die does it lead them to an underground burial site or something like i you know there's so many things that you could add into what happens when they go in quicksand but it 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 causes a moment of panic for your players that they now have to think through how am i going to get out of this quicksand so that i don't suffocate once i go under there's also this monster like that comes to mind for me with using quicksand that i remember playing final fantasy 9 and there's this spot where you start to fall into quicksand and from like the little center comes this big bug kind of looks like an ank egg but it pops out of the middle of the quicksand as you're falling into it and i just imagine if there's a battle where you're you and your pcs are falling into this quicksand and all of a sudden this big crazy looking bug or some other monster pops out from the center and that's the battle that you can't go into you have to be careful about sinking into the middle while also fighting this monster (laughs) Another area that could be really interesting is being on a rope bridge. I mean, a rope bridge comes to mind right away with all different types of disadvantage of like, you have to be careful about where you're swinging that sword during the battle. And the enemy that's fighting you might not be too concerned about that. They might not be worried about it. They might just be in a complete rage trying to kill you. They might be mindless or they might try to do it themselves because they, they're not going to die from the fall, whatever it is that you're fighting it might be a whole different scenario. Yeah, how old is the rope bridge too? Like how much weight can it handle? That type of thing. Like so, deck saves because it's with the battle going on, it's swinging back and forth and you might fall off if you roll a bad one, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. You could also incorporate a sinking ship. So your ship is peppered by a whole bunch of cannonballs and it's now sinking. Like how do you survive that? Especially if you're in one of the lower decks of the ship that gets water more quickly. Like, how in the world do you then get out? Do you swim through a hole in the side of the ship? Do you make a hole in the side of the ship so you can get out of? Do you try and scramble or swim up through the levels? Not like Once you're underwater, you don't know how fast everything else is filling up. So how long can you hold your breath? You know, what things are now swimming into the ship? So, like, if they punctured holes in the bottom, I think of, like, Shaohugan, if they punctured holes in the bottom of the ship and now they're in the bottom of the ship, you're swimming with them. How do you get out from that scenario? There's so many interesting things that could be done with a sinking ship. If you're in a woods like Mirkwood, where there are big spiders everywhere, spider webs can be an environmental hazard to your group. Maybe you can't go certain ways because spider webs are are cutting you off, and you know if you touch them, you're all of a sudden going to... Maybe it does the same thing with the spiders in Mirkwood. It alerts the spiders, but it also might get you stuck. Maybe there's a strength DC to be able to run into the spider web and break out the other side, and if you fail, you're completely immobilized in this web of spider web. There's so many things. I mean, these are just a... These are a lot, but they're just a number of things that you can use as environmental difficulties and advantages to your players wherever they are. And that's something we want to just say, like, think about where it is that your players are fighting their enemy and and what are the environmental 
difficulties and advantages that are going to be given to them because of where they are. I mean, we didn't even mention just different ranges in elevation like there there could be a certain spot of the map that's higher up and so that can give advantage to whoever's on that hill or whatever it is or lower down that's also going to add to it so you could also think about incorporating weather or seasons and i think that this is something that we too often as dms look over but really adds some very interesting elements to any sort of encounter and so if you have things like deep snow or heavy rain lightning and thunder you have gusts of wind you have hail you're out in the middle of a desert and you have the scorching sun or you walk into a swamp and there's fog everywhere. Like think about what can possibly come out of those things. What players now have to try and traverse through. They can't see as far. They might get struck by thunder <laughs> or by they might get struck by lightning. That's always something to be scared of. And so there's just really fun things that you can do with weather and season. So consider incorporating those into a into a future game as well and if you want to max that up to you want to turn that dial to 11 you can go with natural disasters like how is a battle going to be even more crazy if it's in our tornado that's happening like there's a tornado coming at you and it's sucking up enemies and it could suck up pcs that would be absolutely insane we talked about a volcano earlier what happens if you're in the middle of a battle during a volcano is it's erupting it's it's going off what about a hurricane is going on around you an avalanche a flood you could even we're talking about a fantasy world so there could be an arcane storm something that's a a mix between a natural disaster and a magical disaster all put into one it could be crazy Another thing that we can do as DMs is, is so too often we end up just saying, all right, you hit, give me your damage. They miss. They they just miss. They, they don't hit you at all. Instead of just saying, you know, you get hit, you describe how you feel the bite of the sword through your leather armor hitting into your side. Or you feel this slashing pain across your back and you feel the warmth of the blood start to go down your, you know, your back. You could, you could start to describe things more than simply just saying, all right, you hit, or all right, you miss. You know, when somebody's AC is too high for the enemy, you say you bring up your shield, or they, you know, you bring your sword up and you block them right in the middle of their attack instead of just simply saying they they miss you. It can, it can really get players into the mode of there's more than just simply hitting or missing going on. And you could even give them the controls as far as how they hit this character or how they block it, getting them more involved, getting them talking, keeping their brain engaged with what's going on around you in that battle. I think sometimes it's okay like to say you hit or you miss, but like you said, yeah, it, if you do it every single time, it just gets boring. And once again, going back to we want us as DMs to move away from the being ruled by the grid and the minis. And if you're using it as a grid in a mini game, like, and that's what you want to do, I guess that's okay. But we want you to be using your imagination and we want you to be stimulating the player's imagination as well. And so describing the hits. I think whenever a nat 20 happens, it is something that you should definitely describe or even to say to your player, wow, that well done, you hit. Describe to me how you hit this creature. Or if they kill a creature, like they've brought it down to zero hit points, say, oh, you're bringing this creature down. Describe to me how you're killing this monster. It just makes combat way more interesting. 
Another thing that you can add to it is dialogue in combat, whether that's if we're talking about you're controlling the enemies or the allies, whatever it is, there's all different kinds of dialogue you can add to combat to make combat interesting and keep reminding your players that they are controlling characters in a battle situation. You can have your enemies start taunting or using intimidating speech during it. If your enemies are losing the battle, perhaps they start to surrender and so your PCs can decide whether they continue the battle or if they don't and they say, all right, well, we'll, we'll, we'll take their surrender. They can start. Come on, let's be honest. All PCs are just going to keep going. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. <laughs> they can start bargaining. But I think one thing to remember is that each round in D&D is supposed to be six seconds long. So you don't want this to go on for a whole entire minute of this guy said this in one round. It should. Hey, Joe, how's your day going? <laughs> My day yeah, is going exactly. great. <laughs> it should break up. And that should be taken into account with PCs as well. If PCs are trying to communicate things between each other in a round of combat, they're not going to be able to say, oh, I know this beast. It has this and go on for an entire minute of an entire round without going further into battle. It would take much, much longer than that. Another thing that we could all potentially learn from at least try it once or twice that could help you get out of that mindset of using grids or minis could be to do theater of the mind. Now, this is intimidating for some people and some for some people this just flows naturally for them to do it this way and so it makes combat flow quicker i think with when you do theater of the mind because you're not being like okay here's five feet 10 feet 15 feet 20 feet all right now i have a spell that reaches 80 feet all right now i gotta count that out you know what what works best in theater of the mind you can just say all right, yeah, you're you're close enough, or yeah, it's it, you're you're right up on that enemy at that point in time. It makes it fresh because you're not always using those minis to decipher how far away things have to be in order to make them work. And I think the biggest thing too with using theater of the mind, it can help you as a DM practice being more descriptive with what's going on because when you have minis, you can see what the orcs look like, you can see what the mind flares look like, you can see what the guys on horseback look like. But when you're doing theater of the mind, it it makes you consider being more descriptive because, yes, people know what a horse looks like. Yes, people know what an orc looks like. But when you're doing theater of the mind, it opens it up to allow your players to see those scars that each of those people have because there's not a mini that contradicts what you just said in front of you. And so you can use theater of the mind to potentially become more descriptive as a DM. I think you and me, Chris, would want to encourage DMs out there who have never tried theater of the mind to give it a try. Oh, totally. Yeah. I think you and me would both say we have a love and appreciation for minis and grids and those types of battles, but we also have a love and appreciation for theater of the mind. I think that both ways of attacking battle is a really, really great way to do battle. And if you want, if you don't like one way better than the other, it's easy to go. And especially with your, if your players, like some of our players would be really upset if we just went theater of the mind all the time and didn't use minis, especially the ones that are in my campaign who just all bought hero forge minis <laughs> yes. would probably be really upset if we just switched Being over one to of theater those, of the yes, mind. After spending money on a hero <laughs> forge mini, I would, I would be upset yeah, if we never used yeah. them. But yeah, like both ways are great. Try both ways. There are plenty of ways. I think theater of the mind can most often be really good for like impromptu battles, battles that just kind of like come up. Like we had the story time where that you talked about with 
all of the the drug addicts in your world, the Solarian Islands, coming and attacking. And that was something that you were not planning on. And so you didn't go, all right, well, let me drop this map and let me put these guys down. And once again, it harkens back to that. There were a lot of numbers of enemies. And so you didn't go through the let me pull out all these minis and everything. But you just theater of the mind did that. And so we described everything. And yes, there are spells and there are things that like they have radiuses and they have cone attacks. But I think as the DM, it's fairly simple to say, well, here's how this was set up. And so this is what they're going to hit and whatever while you're doing theater of the mind. And it's just a it's a really good way to practice, like you said, as a DM being descriptive because you have to in theater of the mind. And that's oh, just totally. it's, it's something you should totally try as a DM. I think 5E is really, really. And we had, I know we have a lot of people who play 5E that listen in. 5e is really friendly towards theater of the mind and i like that i think that's a good plus in the 5e book is that it's really friendly you can do theater of the mind pretty easy so we hope that you've enjoyed this discussion about how to make combat fresh how to make it have a little bit more teeth once again in your book because as we know combat can be one of those things that we either really look forward to or we really really wish we didn't have to do it and so For either of us in either of those camps, we just wanted to give you a little bit more information about how to make combat feel as fresh as possible and make it as good as possible for your characters that are coming to your table every single time we play. And so before we go, we have a new mailbag of holding that we're going to get to. And so sit tight and enjoy this mailbag of holding. They have been asking for their mail on a daily basis. It's all they're talking about up there. That right there is the mail. Now let's talk about the mail. Can we talk about the mail, please, Mac? I'm dying to talk about the mail for you all day, okay? Well, welcome back to another segment of the mailbag of holding, a place where we come to share ideas, stories, and questions from you, the listener. And so today our mailbag of holding question comes from twitter and it comes from russell tassiker at r tassiker and russell asks us is it possible to keep an unwilling wizard in a mundane prison without chopping bits off them (laughs) so chris what do you think about that a wizard is caught and they've been doing illegal things around town and a prison wants to throw them in jail however they are not a they're not a place where they have anti-magic fields that can make sure this wizard doesn't set off spells. What is it that you can do to make sure wizards are not popping out of your mundane prison really easy or causing trouble? Just take their spell book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's it. That was one of my first <laughs> things that I met, I thought of. I was like, um, well, wizards have spell books. So yeah. that being said, I mean, if a wizard has memorized a couple of spells for the day, if they've memorized yeah. the right kind of spells, it can still be trouble. But yeah, I think that's something that we should we should specify here too. Wizards <laughs> and sorcerers, what what do you do when either of those causes trouble? If they're wizard, clearly you take their spell book. But what are some other things that we can do? I mean, there's always the most spells have some sort of verbal component mm-hmm. to them. So you could always consider uh, putting a gag in their mouth yeah. so they can't speak. That's always that's always one thing that could potentially work. Now, I don't know. It just says verbal. I don't know if it needs to be like completely audible or if it's like if they gargle it because they have that in their mouth, <laughs> it still works. I mean, you could you could rule that however you wanted. If you wanted to say that it has to be 100% perfectly clear, 
that could be one way that you could uh, essentially neuter the the wizard's ability to do things. I think that we mentioned wizard spell books, but components, if you take that into your lore that wizards need components, you're obviously going to take components as well. But yeah, like Chris said, like taking a gag and throwing it on their in their mouth is a is a perfect way to stop them from using those verbal components. I'm not exactly sure about the rules and the feats of magic users in 5e, but I know in 3.5, you could take feats that allowed you to use spells without verbal and somatic components. And so you could do it without using your hands or using the words. However, that always made the spells higher up in spell slots. So it, it did put a dampening effect onto it. I actually had this happen a lot in my early days of DMing where wizards and sorcerers would get thrown into prison because they would do things that would, (laughs) would, would make the town fear them and be like, Oh, you can't do that in town. And they would get in prison and they'd just be like, I'll just get out of these, these (laughs) manacles or whatever you throw me in. And so what I, as the DM had to realize, I was like, you know, this is a, a good way to point out that in a world filled with magic, mundane prisons would need a way to combat throwing a wizard in jail and the wizard not just turning invisible or using fireball and all the guards and taking the keys or using fireball against the wall and like knocking out the wall and like leaving. (laughs) (laughs) And so for Atos, I created mage manacles, which basically they are these handcuffs that they go around your entire hands and they make your hands completely need to be in fist shape and they cannot leave fist shape. So just imagine these these big metal manacles that make your hands completely put together, sealed together. They cannot leave fist shape, which stops them from using their hands to cast spells. And then along with that, they also get this iron mask that is bolted onto their head with only the nostrils being able to have a hole in them so they can they can breathe through their nose. Their whole entire mouth is cut off from making any sort of noise. And because sometimes even with those somatic and verbal components being taken out of it because some wizards are powerful enough to do that, they are completely have no vision with these masks. The eyes have totally been sealed off. So if they want to use a fireball, if they want to use a whatever it is, they have no idea where they're casting it, if they're even able to at this point to use it. And so these things are very, very popular in autos. They're fairly cheap. So they're sold to mundane prisons all over the world because people don't want to deal with a evil wizard that just wants to throw fireballs in prison and kill all the guards and guards would never work at prisons that had wizards staying there if that was going to be the case so it makes a lot of sense when you're living in a magical world to have ways to combat those kind of things if people are in prison that there's a way to keep your people safe now that being said I would also think that there are plenty of wizards that maybe are powerful enough to get out of this. However, a mundane prison is going to do the most that they can. And so mage manacles is something I created for my world. And I, I like that idea of like <laughs> a mask being put over and the only holes it has in it is for the nostrils, like ears cut off, eyes cut off, mouth cut off. And so if you're a wizard and you get thrown in prison, it's not very humane, but they're not too concerned about it at that point. Yeah, I think the other thing I'm wondering too, what wizard got caught that wasn't a low-level wizard in a mundane city in and of itself? Like, 
Yeah, right. That's the part that I'm wondering about. Like, if it's a high enough level wizard, they're probably going to be able to get they out, or fly, nobody will be able to fly cast out them. of yeah. the city. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah. you're right. I feel like they have to be a certain lower level, or depending on the modernity of the prison, it's going to be a city that can't even handle capturing this wizard. Right, but if they if they are at that special weird spot where they're not powerful enough to not be captured. Then yeah, I love those ideas of having manacles or masks or, you know, even if even if you have to give them some sort of sedative that they don't wake up from, uh, that type of thing yeah. too. Like I would I would imagine there's things that you can scrounge up that are able to knock people out for an extended period of time and so then they're just they're just stuck there. They can't ever replenish their spells because they're not at high, you know, they they don't have enough time to rest. They're just constantly sedated. I mean, there's there's so many things that you could do to to prevent those people that are in that level range where they would be captured in a mundane town. I find imprisoning wizards to be so fascinating. I, I got really obsessed with it in my world creation. And so there's this whole country that is completely terrified. And obviously, government propaganda keeps working towards making them terrified about any kind of arcane magic divine magic they're okay with because they got their priests but any kind of arcane magic is deemed illegal and so they have this special prison that is completely like it's got these tall pillars that are on the outside like of the prison that surround the prison and it's an anti-magic field and it's where they send all their their quote-unquote worst of the worst as far as wizards go and then you have these bounty hunters that are in this country that are called mage hunters and they always have weapons that have anti-magic like like crossbows that shoot anti-magic darts or like you just said darts that like as soon as they hit they'll knock people to sleep and i always i think about it with wizards it's always going to be this hunting wizards that are on the run that are fugitives it's always this sense of we have to we have to shoot first we have to take them down we have to have the surprise on them so they can't let off that fireball or whatever it is that they're going to use they're especially higher level wizards like with time stop and things like that if you can get them while they're asleep and keep them asleep then you've stopped them from being able to do anything of course higher level wizards are also going to be putting alarms around their camps or whatever it is yeah but, or traps or yeah. you know something something like that or have minions that do their bidding too. but i yeah, feel so. it i feel like it's so fascinating it's so fascinating to me the whole idea of people without magic finding ways to hunt down people with magic and imprison them i love that idea so thank you so much russell tassiker for sending us that awesome question we hope that that answers your question well enough for you so that's all we have for you today on the Dungeon Masters block. We hope that this entire conversation about how to make combat fresh to go quickly and not have like terrible pauses and just be all out there. We hope this whole discussion of combat has really helped you and is able to give you some ideas to make your next big battle sequence a really really interesting one whether it's using monster powers or whether it's using environments all these kind of things can add to a battle and keep your players on their toes keep them guessing difficult battle can be really good sometimes you want to make your players sweat sometimes that's a good thing right chris <laughs> oh yeah Yep. So, Chris, if they want to write to us and they want to have maybe they have combat ideas themselves, different ways that you can make combat interesting. Maybe they have questions for us. Maybe they have just a story that they would like to share with us about an amazing combat or just something else. D&D &D in general. Where can they reach us at? 
yeah, send us an email to dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. We will read all of the emails that we get as soon as we possibly can and respond back to you as fast as we can. You can also go ahead and leave us an iTunes review. Leave us a five-star review there, and you will get a, a shout-out on a future episode. So head on over there. It helps us grow. It helps our community grow. helps people know that we're actually worth listening to. And you can also find us on Podcast Addict and Stitcher and various other Android apps for podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMS block. You can like our Facebook page. Both of those places have updates about the show and all-around D&D goodness. We have a Patreon member shout-out of the week, and this week's Patreon member shout-out goes to... Andrew Anthony. Thank you very much, Andrew. We really appreciate your support. Andrew is a dreaded silver dragon, so fear him uh, as he's flying around on the forums and around (laughs) on the Twitter sphere as well. So thank you very much, Andrew Anthony. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. Well, with that, we're closing down the shop. We are turning on the anti-magic fields, and we are saying goodbye from us here to you, from us at the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come together to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all other people at the table. Have a good night, everyone and keep on dungeon mastering. Goodbye.